As we turn to uh, God's word, 1 Kings chapter 6 and 7, let's pray and ask his spirit to, to be with us as we look at his word. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. Convict us, but encourage us. Uh, reveal to us God, but also ourselves. Help us to know how we can love God and help us to know how we can love our neighbor. Thank you for loving us first. Because if you had not done that, uh, we would be without hope. But you have done that, and we are, with, we are full of hope, knowing that the work that you are doing, no one can stop, no one can thwart, uh, not even us. Um, and we praise you for this in Christ's name and ask you to reveal Jesus to us in this scripture this morning. Amen. Do you remember the first house that you ever lived in? Or at least the first house that you remember, right? I'm talking about when, I, when you're a little kid. You remember that one? Got some nods. My, my first house that I remember was uh, at, on Northeast 26th Court in Fort Lauderdale. And in the backyard, in this enormous backyard, I mean like a three-quarters of an acre or something. I don't know. For, to a kid, it seemed like it was like 50 acres. You know, I was little. And in the dead center of this yard was a gigantic ficus tree. I mean, the biggest one ever in the world. Because I was a kid, and I was little. Um, and the thing was about this one that you could climb up into it pretty easily. And so we climbed up into it, me and my brothers, and we discovered that there were various levels. And we, named, we numbered the levels. There was level one, level two, level three was over here, level four was up beyond it, but it was a little bit dangerous because you had to kind of go out on a limb. And I think we got up to like 11 or 12 levels. I mean, you could go way up into this tree, you know, when you're little, you don't, I mean, like I couldn't, I'd break the branch now, right? But, you know, when you're little, it's like you could just scurry out into this tree. And it was, it was crazy. Maybe we even got up to 17. I sort of remember the number 17. There were a lot of levels. Um, and my brothers and I played in this tree constantly, right? You remember stuff like that. The first house we ever bought, the first one that first time I ever owned a piece of land was on Wiley Lane in Boise, Idaho. And we, you know, I remember buying that and the first thing I bought, what do you think was the first thing I bought for my house? It was a lawnmower. <laughs> I went up to the I went up to the pawn shop and lowballed them on a on a lawnmower and I got it. Uh, and, you know, and so I got this lawnmower, and I think I might have even, like, stashed it in the garage before we had technically closed. That's how excited I was. And then we, we lived in that house for nine years, and without, you know, even when, even when you're not feeling it, right, without exception, every single time that I mowed the lawn for nine years, I thought to myself, wow, this is the piece of land. God has, God has charged me with the care of this tiny slice of the earth. Right? Like, these plants are mine. These gorgeous maple trees are mine, but they're mine to take care of. And this lawn is mine to mow. And it was challenging because we didn't have sprinklers and we lived in a desert. So <laughs> it, was, uh, it was uphill. Uh, but we had a, you know, every time, I, every time I worked outside, every time I trimmed the bushes, every time I worked in the garden, even when I was like, Ugh, I just really don't have time to do this right now, I really did think, like, wow, like God has entrusted this tiny, tiny slice of his creation to me. And so, okay, you're the boss of this, and I want you to go and create a home here, right? Um, I still feel that way. Every, I'm mowing the house that we bought here in Tallahassee. 
I'm like, oh, I can't believe that God gave me this space. That's an incredible gift, even when I don't feel like it. So, um, first house, right? Uh, (laughs) It sounds bizarre to say this, but this is God's first house that Solomon is building here in chapter 6. It's God's first house. God, God never had a house before that. He dwelled in the garden with, he didn't dwell there. He walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. And since then, God and man had been separated. The relationship had been fractured and God's far away. Now there are times and places in which God draws near again. And, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers are full of times and examples of God. God stretching out across the impossible divide to connect with his people and be connected to his people, right? Um, but this is the first time that God's had a spot on the earth where it's like this dimensions, this square footage is the God house, right? There was a tabernacle for centuries. But the tabernacle was, you know, it moved around a lot. You've got to think, too, like, I'm sure they did some level, some good level of maintenance on the thing. But by the time we get to Solomon, that thing is centuries old. I mean, it's like super old. And not only that, but, I mean, really, there is quite a, if you track what happens to the tabernacle through the book of Judges and the reign of Saul and even the reign of David, the tabernacle's kind of neglected. And like kind of little bits of it are stored over in this guy's garage. And this guy over here, he's got, you know, well, he's, you know, hey, where's the, where's the laver? Oh, you know, Jim's got it over at his place. You know, he's using it as a bird bath or, I mean, it was, it was, I'm exaggerating a little, but not a ton. And so God's house had really been neglected. There's a huge amount of significance to Solomon saying, no, we're going to, we're going to do this. It's time to do it. It's time to build a house for God. In the description, I encourage you to go home and read. Just read through the whole of 6 and 7. It'll take you five minutes to read both chapters. But in chapter 6, especially when he's describing the house of God, I think you'll just be amazed at the sheer lushness of it. The way it's described, everything is covered in wood. Beautiful, gorgeous cedar wood and cypress wood. Those are the two woods in the ancient world that don't deteriorate. Right? Those are the two that have some level of natural staying power. They are the, the slowest to rot. And so this is the symbolism of that is this is permanent. This isn't going anywhere, right? It's not going to collapse on itself. And then with stuff that was wood, like those those incredible cherubim that we described, right? Fifteen feet tall, fifteen feet wide, and there are two of them. So it's thirty feet, you know, it's like the whole width of this room but twice as high. And these gigantic angels are standing there. And why are there two cherubim standing there with their wings stretched out? It's like a police line, right? Police line, do not cross. It's the symbolism of being banned from the garden. When Adam and Eve were banned from the garden, God put cherubim out in front of the garden so that nobody could go back in. And so these gorgeous, stunning cherubim made out of the most beautiful wood you can imagine, and then they covered it in gold. These cherubim are tragic. This is a, this is a message of loss. 
Sorry, guys, you can't go back there where God lives. Right? You're in his house, and that's, but that's as close as you're going to get. Right? It's kind of like when God sees, when, God, and when Moses says, can I come and see you? And God says, well, I'll let you see kind of like the tiny, tiniest bit of my back. <laughs> if I let you see my front, you wouldn't be able to handle it. You'd die. Um, and so similarly here in Solomon's temple, there's kind of this tragic message that you are blocked off from God, except through the priests who can go through. So there's, there's some hope and some gospel in there as well. But I just want to emphasize, this thing is like you'd have been blown away, right? So one of the things that's key, if you read the description of this, is that um, it doesn't call this out in the text. But if you go back and look at the dimensions of the original tabernacle that Moses built, this temple is exactly, in every dimension, twice the size. It's literally double. Double this way, double that way, double this way. So everything about it has been expanded double. And there's this like expansion of God's domain. There's an expansion of his footprint. It's a gospel message that God is, maybe slowly, but God is invading, right? He's taking up more space. The house of God is bigger than it used to be. Isn't that good news? That the house of God is bigger than it used to be. And what's really funny is in here it'll say, uh, they, the stones that they use, this is a funny little this is a funny little thing. The stones that they quarried, it says that they shaped them all carefully so that they would fit together. They shaped them all at the quarry instead of bringing them to the temple and then shaping them all so they fit together perfectly. And it says why. It says they shaped them at the quarry so that it wouldn't, the house of God wouldn't be filled with a bunch of hammer noises. They're like, no, no, no. This is a place of awe. This is a place of majesty. Even while we're building it, we're not going to treat it like a construction zone. Right? I mean, so even from like the foundation of this thing, which was these gigantic quarried stones, they were like, no, 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 no. This is the house of God. And the people of Israel were just, you know, totally took this seriously. And it really is kind of intended to be this picture of the expansion of God's glory. God's glory is doubling. And then what happens after it doubles? It doubles again. And then what happens after it doubles? It doubles again. And what happens after that? It doubles again. And that's kind of the imagery that's being used here in the creation of Solomon's house. So God's house by Solomon. Okay. We're not going to talk a ton about Solomon's house. We're going to talk about God's house. So we're going to spend way less time on chapter 7. And we're going to talk about three things from chapter 6. What does this house of God mean to Israel? And I'm telling you, we could be here all day talking through that. Um, it means way more. It meant way more to Israel than I can ever know or comprehend. But we're going to look at three things that this house of God meant to Israel. The first one is right there in verse 1. We read it in verse 1. It's the most bizarre place. To start this story. Except that the author's doing it on purpose. He's calling your attention to something on purpose. What does verse 1 say? It was in the 480th, is that, did I get that right? 480th year after the Exodus. 
And you're like, what? Why are we measuring from the Exodus? And the reason the author is doing that, he's calling your attention to that because this is hugely significant in the history of Israel. Israel has been a wandering nation. Israel has been a nation that is meandering. You remember how it took them 40 years to get across the desert? I think one time I calculated out that like if we, if we walked across it, I just took average human walking speed, a normal amount of hours walking per week or per day. And I remember, I remember one time trying to calculate out how long it would take to walk across the Sinai Peninsula. And I think I calculated, my recollection is I calculated it out at about a week and a half. And it took them 40 years. Right? I mean, that's amazing. They've been wandering, like, not just wandering, but wandering to the excess. And then when they actually even get into the land, they're still wandering in the land, right? The land is never settled. That's one of the repeat messages of the book of Judges. That's one of the repeated problems of the kingships of Saul and David is that the kingdom of Israel is never settled. There's always enemies. There's always flux. If you pay, and I'm not a biblical geographer by any means. I'm getting this from reading people that are. But even the borders, when, you know, throughout Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, the borders of Israel are constantly changing. And it's shrinking and growing. And the nation itself, its own geography is ambiguous. It's this constantly morphing, changing thing. It's Solomon's reign that changes all of that. In Solomon's reign, Israel has fixed borders because they have no wars. They're not fighting anybody. And during Solomon's reign, the borders are the broadest. I I have read, I don't know this firsthand, but I've read that they are the broadest that they ever were in Israel's history, either before or after. So this is the biggest, most settled, most protected kingdom of God. This is the moment in which Israel finally ends its exodus. The exodus is continuing. The exodus, and that's, you guys, that's why David wanted to build this house. David's like, you know, we need a, we need, you know, we're not settling into, David says this, he's like, I'm not going to live in a house until God has a house. I'm going to build you a house. And God says, no, not you. It's going to be your son. The son of David is going to come and build me a house. And that's the house I'm going to dwell in, right? So, the portable Sinai of uh, the tabernacle is finally uh, retired, and they are finally, finally, finally finished with their wandering homelessness. And God puts His feet up because He's got a house. Do you know in the ancient world this is the coolest thing? In the ancient world, you can go to any museum that has ancient Near Eastern artifacts, and there's still quite a lot that have this particular object. There are a lot of them extant. There are footstools. And when the king would sit on his throne, there'd be a footstool. It's basically a little ottoman, right? You've got those at your house. But you know how universally, go look at any museum, and remember I said, and you'll see it for yourself. Universally, do you know how those ottomans were decorated? If you go, you'll look, and there are faces on them. And the reason for that is because the ancient Near Eastern kings would paint the pictures of the kings they had defeated and put it on their ottoman. Why on their ottoman? 
Because if you remember the biblical phrase, he will put his enemies under their feet. This is a practice in the ancient world. This is not just like a random phrase that God is throwing out. He's saying Jesus is the king who is going to come and put his enemies under his feet. He's going to make an ottoman, and all those enemies are going to be on the ottoman. And that's the the ancient Near Eastern practice of the footstool. So God is coming and putting his feet up. God is putting his feet up. Why? Because there's no battles to fight right now. It's a time of peace. It's a time of prosperity. It's a time of blessing. And as we've talked about from the beginning, you know, Solomon, Solomon's the picture of something else because all of this is not permanent. It doesn't last. Solomon's, king, Solomon's temple is gone today, right? Um, there's, there's a, it's a temporary picture of something eternal that God is doing. But that's the imagery. God finally has a house and he goes in and he sits down on that throne and he puts his feet up. Isn't that amazing? They're finally settled. Israel is settled. Just like it was at creation. Now, finally, we could say about the Exodus. It is finished, and it is very good. It is very good. And this symbolism is actually buried right in there. It says it took Solomon seven years to build it. And the seven years is like the seven days of creation. And when he finishes the seven-year construction... He finishes his creation, and it was all very good. And then what happens when you're done creating? You rest. And the people of Israel experience this time of rest, right? Um, Home. Israel is permanently and forever home. And we love that feeling of home, don't we? College students who are maybe maybe, uh, scattered at the moment. Some of you on Zoom here maybe are some of the college students from our church that are maybe elsewhere. And, you know, there's something about coming home that is sweet. And I remember college friends, you know, this, this is fine. It's not like a crime or anything. I remember college friends whose parents moved after they started college. And they were like, oh, that house that my parents live in now, it isn't home, right? I don't feel like I can go home. Like, I can go home to my people, but I don't have any particular attachment to that house, right? We love that feeling of being able to go home and to put our feet up and to be safe and to rest. That's the first thing that this meant to Israel. We'll come back, we'll loop back around a couple of these here. The second thing that this meant to Israel is actually quite striking. If you read through chapter 6 and 7, I, you know, maybe I missed one, but I noticed zero references to this house of God being called a temple. It's the temple of Solomon, and that's what it's referred to even as this, in this day, right? But throughout this text, it is only ever called the house. It's a house of of God. And that's repeated over and over and over again in this passage. It's never referred to as a temple, it's referred to as a house. And so this is the the, the palace of the true king of Israel. Notice that his palace gets built before Solomon's, right? Uh, this is where the throne room is. This is where the castle is. This is where the treasury is. This is the place of justice. There are lesser kings in the second palace that gets built second. But this is the true palace. And this is the true heavenly throne room that has come to earth. 
there's something interesting about this. You know, there's still a barrier. Those cherubim are still there, and the people of God can't just rush in. However, the throne room of God has, at this point, officially invaded earth. The heavenly place has struck a spearhead. It's like D-Day, right? Where it's like, okay, Omaha Beach, you know, Utah Beach, Sword Beach, Juneau Beach. We've landed. We've got this little slice of France. And from here, we're going to push out into the rest of the world, into the rest of France, and, and retake that which has been stolen, right? It's something like that. This heavenly throne room is invaded. And that's fort, it's fortified. I mean, you guys ever seen a... Um, You've probably seen pictures of medieval castles, and they have different names for all of these different things. Like one, this is a great example. You guys ever seen the Tower of London? The Tower of London starts with this, it was originally just this one little tower. That's why it's called the Tower. It's the White Tower. And that was it. And then they built a section around that and made it bigger. And then they built a section around that and made it bigger. And this is typical of medieval castles. And what that creates is this thing where down in the center, where the like, true heart of the thing is, that's the safest spot. It's secure. So it's like we got three sets of walls. If they breach the first one, they still got to breach the second one. And then even if they were to breach the second one, you get into that central tower. And man, they can lock that thing down. And it's got doors stashed away in its basement. And we could sit here for two years. And we could just be in this tower. We got weapons. We got food. We got water. And you can't, you can't defeat us here. And this throne room invasion of God is like that. God's throne comes and forms the beachhead in the land of the enemy. And it is this fortification. It's so huge and established and imposing. It's like a castle. It's totally defendable. Um, at least that's the, the imagery that is, uh, that is being depicted here. The heavenly throne room has been relocated to earth. Now, can you even imagine that? Let's see, I think this is maybe even hard for us to imagine because we don't, I don't know, we have, we don't have, maybe it's, maybe it's easier because we live, where this church is within eyesight of the capital. Like, if you knew which one of those windows was the governor's office, you could point at it and be like, that's the governor's office right there. It's right there. And maybe that's the closest we can come to it. But can you imagine, you know, this has never existed in the history of humanity. And you, now you can look over there and you can say, the throne of God is right over there. It's right there, guys. Like, I'm standing on the other side. of the, I can't go in there yet. But it's right here, guys. I can, I can touch it. I can smell it. See it? It's all tangible. It's all right there. That must have been delightful. Can you imagine what it would have been like when it, the whole thing was bulldozed by the Babylonians? And they came in and left not one rock on top of the other, is the ancient Near Eastern way of saying, we're going we're gonna to demolish this so much that you can't demolish it further. You can't, you can't, you're like, well, at least we've got a few. Nope, let's knock those rocks over too. You know, we're not going to leave any two bricks adjacent to each other. And when Judah returned from exile, 
70 years later. They came and tried to rebuild it, but they knew, they knew this was nothing. This house, this throne room, this castle was nothing compared to the one Solomon built. You know, it, it was a total retrograde because remember the tabernacle's this size, the temple of Solomon's this size, and then the post-exilic temple is like this size. And they had a little bit of gold, they had, they had, but it was nothing, it was nothing compared to what Solomon had built. And they knew it. And what did that do? That made them yearn. Yearn for a new temple. Uh, during the time that Jesus was in his ministry on earth, Herod decided he was going to expand the temple. And so he starts investing money into the temple. And he wants to rebuild it to its glorious, uh, previous glory, right? And so Herod is trying to do this, but why is Herod doing it? So that everyone will say, oh, Herod, you are great. This is the temple of the great Herod. Herod came. Solomon built the great temple. And then Herod came and built a greater one. That's Herod's desire. Uh, Herod keeps running into money problems. Everything that could possibly go wrong goes wrong. And that Herod's temple is never really built. And along comes Jesus and says, let me show you how to build a temple. Because I know how to build them in three days. Right? And he's going to build a completely different type of temple. He's going to take that imagery, that picture of the throne room, the castle. And he's going to say, I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it in a completely different way than you can imagine. So God answers. God answers the demolishing and the, the sort of uh, yucky, lame, I don't know, okay-ish maybe, rebuild of Solomon's temple. He answers all of that by sending his son. And as we talked about last week, the sun is going to build a temple that encompasses the whole world. Let's talk about the third thing. We'll make this one short. This is not just a house for God to live in. There is some powerful imagery here. Repeatedly throughout this chapter, the, the language, repeatedly the phrase, where God will dwell with his people, dwell with his people. There's a drawing close to God. Angels are still there. The way into his throne room is still blocked. You may not go in yet, but he's drawing close. He's coming near. He has come to dwell with his people. And, uh, you know, one of the Bible's main images of doing that is that this is, this is God building, or communicating this idea, is that this is God building the house for his bride. You know, it's like, it's like the husband who's like, you know, I, I'm really, I really love this girl. I'd really like to um, think maybe I'll marry her. But, you know, right now I, I, don't, I don't have anything. What would I, you know, I don't, you know, what would I take her home to? And, you know, it's like that guy who's like, I'm going to, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to be ready. I'm going to go and get ready to take my bride home. And I'm going to have all, I'm going to have everything lined up. It's going to be beautiful. And, you know, we have this tradition, right? What is the... The tradition is that, you know, the, the groom picks up the bride and carries her across the altar into the house. This is your house. It was my house, and now it's your house. And that's what's being communicated here. This pattern of the temple is being established so that when Christ comes and builds a different temple, when he builds a temple out of living stones, when he builds a temple out of us, 
He's welcoming us into that house. Because the operating phrase is still, he has come to dwell with, right? We know this from Christmas, right? Emmanuel, God with us. His name will be Emmanuel. This is the uniqueness of Christ. This is, this is the, the beauty of Isaiah's prophecies about the Messiah to come, is that this will be the fullness of the restoration of the relationship between God and man. God and humanity will be like a bride and a groom. That's how tight they'll be. Just the way God intended it. Just the way he wanted it to be. Okay. Um, give me, let's take just a minute. We've got, uh, we've got the Israel's done wandering. We've got God's throne room is right here. And we've got God has built a house for his bride. And you have to see, I mean, we can look through all the scriptures. We can go from Adam and Eve to Noah to Abraham to Moses to David to Jesus to the, new, to the church, the apostles. We could trace this lineage. There's like a direct family tree to us. This is, this is including us. The temple that God is building, uh, his invasion into our fallen and broken world. All of that is connected directly to us. The proximity of his throne room. And he, you, know, I, you know, we could go on and on. Like the New Testament says, now we can go boldly into the throne room. You know, the cherubim that were there, do not, police line, do not cross. You know what happened to the cherubim? This is my, men- that doesn't say this in the Bible, but this is my mental picture. These two cherubim that are standing there and blocking the way, and, you know, you shall not pass, right? What do they do? They turn. And they, the doors open. And they can just walk right in. How do we know that? Because when Jesus, you remember in Herod's temple, they had a curtain that had the two cherubim. They couldn't afford to build the giant wooden things, right, with, and cover them with gold. So they just knitted a curtain. And there was a curtain that had two cherubim on it. And the moment Jesus died, the moment he said it's finished, what happened? That curtain was, was torn right in half. And that cur- the curtain, in, in that curtain, <laughs> the cherubim are like, you may go through. Come on in. Come on into the house of God. Come on into the throne room. Come on into his presence. Come on into the safest, most just, most glorious, most awesome. Like literally, ah, remember like the no, no hammer zone? Ah, oh, no, you know, you walk, you would walk into that throne room and you'd be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm in here. Gosh, pinch me, pinch me. Am I, is this real? Am I really, is this a dream? You know, like we'd all just be doing that when we went in. Is it okay? Am I going to die? You go first, man. No, you go first. You know, um, the whole imagery of all of this is that we can be done wandering. We wander so bad. We wander so badly. We wander from one thing to another and we're like, no, 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 this will fix it. This will make me, this is, the, this is the meaning of life is, if only I had, I'll tell you what, the one thing that if I had it right now, it would fix everything. It's, right? And we could all just fill in those blanks differently, right? Maybe, probably a lot of our answers would be the same. But even if they were different, we're all like, maybe this is it. 
No, maybe this is, you know, maybe this is, maybe he is it. Maybe she is it. Maybe my kids. Maybe true life will come through my kids. Maybe that will be fulfillment and meaning. Maybe it'll be through my work. Oh my gosh, you know what I ought to do? I ought to double and triple and quadruple down on my work. Because that might, that might be the thing that actually puts me over the top and makes me what, I'm, what I want to be, what I feel I should be, what I feel burdened to be, right? We, uh, I don't have to go on and on about it because we're all, we all can fill in that blank, right? The message of this whole temple thing is that we can be done wandering. It's time to be done wandering. All we need to do is come into the safe, glorious, just, awesome throne room of God. We need to come in through Christ who has enabled our entry into that throne room by taking our place on the cross, by bearing our sins, our, our uh, everything that blocked us from God. He took it upon himself. And now all of the barriers are gone. The curtain is torn in two. The cherubim have stepped aside because everything has been satisfied in the person and work of Jesus. And so now we boldly walk into the throne room of God because God lives here now. He's close. Where does God live now? How close is God? Where's his new throne room? The spirit of God is in his people. Where is God? Wherever you go. That's where God is. I'll never leave you or forsake you, Jesus said. I am with you to the end of the age. I will never leave you or forsake you. Not only that, God is calling, Jesus is calling you to be his bride. He is saying to you, he is saying, I love you so much that I want to overcome anything and everything that would divide us apart. And I want your relationship with me to be as tight as a perfect bride and groom. That's what I want. And he is calling you. He is calling all of us to come toward him. Why would we turn around? We look, we kind of peer in through the curtain and we glance in there. We're like, that looks really cool in there. And then we start to walk this way. No, 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 no. We peer into the curtain and we say, I need to be, I need to go that way. That's where I need to be headed. That's Christ's calling on us. Come and know me. Come and follow me. That's the good news of the gospel. And the entire work, like we talked uh, last week or the week before about how even uh, the temple is supposed to mirror in many ways. There's great literature on this. The creation. And there's ties to Genesis 1. And when God creates the world, that is reflected in the temple itself, right? Uh, God's created this whole world to point us to this, whole, to this one thing. Come and be done wandering. Come and be done wandering. God is close, and he is calling you to be his bride. Let's pray. Thank you, Father in heaven, for this word that is almost too good to be true. Um, And yet, when you say it, whatever you say um, becomes true. Whatever you say. When you say something, when you say, let there be stars... Stars form where there were no stars. The universe changes shape to accommodate your word. And so here we are confronted with your word that says, 
I love you, come to me and, and be done wandering. Lord, help us to believe that word and to follow that word above all else. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.